Dear listener, we hope that you've been enjoying the variety of podcasts that we have on our network. Now is your opportunity to help us by telling us a little more about you. Please visit jcastnetwork.org survey and complete our listener survey so that we can learn more about you and your listening habits. Again, please visit jcastnetwork.org survey. Thanks so much. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for the warm invitation to be here today. And uh, Marcia, thank you for the generous introductions. I was thinking, I wish my mom was here to hear that kind of <laughs> overflowing praise. Um, and you know what? Uh, Michael and I have known each other for several years and enjoyed a warm friendship. But some of that is stuff that I heard that I hadn't known before. And it's always fun to be impressed with your friends. And I mean that very sincerely. I, I really mean that very sincerely. And um, so hearing that was meaningful to me as well. We thought we'd begin this morning just with some very brief um, biographical information because we both, as we've talked about this morning, have felt that our own biographies have been informative and significant in shaping our lives and why we're doing what we're doing. So, uh, Michael, why don't you start us off? Sure. Uh, thanks also for the warm introduction and for the warm reception. It's really incredible to be here. And just uh, to pick up on something that uh, Marcia accidentally said, uh, they, uh, I had friends that used to call the um, uh, the seminary where I received my undergraduate ed- education, the Jewish Theological Seminary, people called it the Jewish Theological Cemetery, right. where Judaism and religion went to die. Right. Uh, so, and some students. And some students sometimes, yeah. So I was, I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, for those of you who want a little bit of a frame of reference, I was born in 1983. Uh, and so that, what are you gonna do? So, but that's, that feels very significant to my religious trajectory because the world uh, in which I was born into, and in particular the Jewish world that I was born into, uh, was very different than the Jewish world and the religious world of my parents and my grandparents. So my grandparents um, were the children of immigrants. Uh, my, uh, they were very involved in my synagogue and Jewish institutions. My, my parents were as well, my, my siblings and I all went to a Jewish day school, a Jewish private school in Atlanta that was a dual curriculum of uh, Judaics and uh, secular studies. Uh, and, uh, and so I was, I was brought up in the midst of Jewish community, really in the thick of Jewish life. Uh, and uh, from, a, from a fairly early age, even though there was a degree of, of pride I got from uh, learning what I was learning and being involved in the ways I was involved in Jewish community, uh, when I started to kind of grow into consciousness, uh, I started to realize all of the problems. I was a very kind of skeptical and cynical kid in some ways. I, I started to realize all of the problems and challenges that I had with Judaism and religion in the Jewish community. So I'll just give you a for example. This is one that always sticks out the most in my mind. Uh, the school that I went to was affiliated with uh, the Orthodox denomination of, uh, of Judaism. Uh, which is uh, the most, I would say, conservative denomination of Judaism. And I had a teacher uh, that, uh, that, that argued, according to rabbinic tradition, the world, we're in the year 5,777 right now. 
uh, which means that uh, the, they date from the creation of the world 5,777 years. And I was learning in science that the world was billions of years old and that the universe was even billions more uh, uh, years older than that. And so I asked my, uh, one of my Judaics teachers, well then, if you say the world is 6,000 years old and science says the world is billions of years old and we have dinosaur fossils that date from millions and millions of years old, tens of millions of years old, how do you explain dinosaur fossils? And he looked me straight in the eye with a you know, very serious look on his face and said, God put them in the earth to test our faith. <laughs> now, I have certainly no way of disproving that, but as a, as a fifth grader, I had my sort of skeptical alarm bells went off. And as I was, as I was young and, and emerging into consciousness as an early adolescent and teen, I, I saw in the Jewish world a kind of uh, parochial, a parochial, parochialism and knee-jerk tribalism that made me uncomfortable, a sort of unthinking and, and uh, uh, unreflective disposition toward Judaism, and a Judaism that was much more concerned with very small Jewish questions. You know, how, what makes this chicken kosher, for example? Uh, and very unconcerned with larger global questions that I was wrestling with in a much more inclusive America than my parents and certainly my grandparents uh, grew up in, uh, in a much more interconnected world than my parents or grandparents' generation grew up in. I, I, I was talking with David behind uh, backstage. Uh, I think I, we got our first computer when I was in third grade in my house and we were connected to the internet. Uh, by the time I was in probably fifth or sixth grade and high-speed internet soon after that. So I, I really kind of came to the internet age almost as a native. Uh, and I saw this interconnected multicultural world and saw the Jewish place in it as being sort of small and, uh, and, and limited in scope. And I looked at the Jewish world and my Jewish community and my synagogue and I said, is this all there is? So it took me until I was in high school to actually discover a Judaism that spoke to uh, the issues that were really facing the world, that actually spoke to uh, what I saw as the, the pressing questions of the day and the real struggles that people had in their lives. Uh, I, I really discovered conservative Judaism at that time, which is a Judaism that is both wedded in, uh, rooted in tradition but also open to contemporary realities and so uh, really wrestles openly with, uh, with issues of modernity uh, in, in uh, creative but also deeply traditional ways uh, that I hadn't experienced growing up. Uh, a Judaism that was open and, uh, and responsive to the questions and the needs of, uh, of, of the radically transformed era in which we uh, find ourselves. So um, I, I decided after being involved as a teenager in uh, a conservative movement Jewish youth group called USY, I became very involved in that, that I would become a rabbi. Um, but I in particular wanted to be a rabbi because I felt like the Jewish community, and I think that uh, uh, American community, the world community, needed religious leadership that mustered the resources of our ancient tradition to address the real life issues of today, and I didn't see that really existing uh, in the Jewish world. So that's what actually really drives my rabbinate now, and I, and I think that biography really shapes that. So listening to Michael, I've heard some of this before, but it provides a little bit more color. Our stories are sort of similar in some ways, except that 
my birthday was a little bit prior to Michael's. Um, a little bit of similarity in terms of the personalities, you know, these two kids. Uh, when I was growing up, my parents took us to church. This is in New Jersey, in the metro New York City area. And uh, I didn't like it at all. And when I got old enough to make my protests a significant enough bummer for my parents, I think they decided that they were no longer going to push it. That there was an agreement, however, they said, we'll no longer uh, require you to go to church, but you have to agree to go through a confirmation class when you're 13. So that was our brokered peace agreement when I was about six or seven years old. And then when I was 13, I was enrolled for this confirmation class. So I remember this confirmation class quite well. And here's where some similarities. The teacher of the class was an assistant minister at this church. And I was raising my hand all the time. And I would say, well, if this is true, then how can this be true? Right. And if that's true, and if the Bible says this, then what about this? And I was too young and self-centered to realize that I was probably hijacking the class with my questions. And then I must have been a real frustration to the teacher. But here's something I do remember, to be honest, and I hope kind. I do remember that the answers were not intellectually satisfying to me. But I remember his kindness in the way he received the answers. And I've never forgotten that. So essentially, in the weird ways this happens, I was confirmed knowing that I didn't believe any of it, but it's just what you do. And so I went through the confirmation process having been confirmed that I don't believe any of it. And that was the end of it. Our agreement was over and I could get back to sports on Sundays and life as I would prefer it. Um, by the time I got to be 14, 15, 16, my parents tell me I'd always been sort of a philosophical, big questions person. I was trying to get to the bottom of what's it all about? What's life all about? How did we get here? Is there a God? What about religions? What about all the different religions? Uh, is one of them true or the others not true? Um, all this kind of journeying. By the time I got to be 17, I had comfortably arrived in my own personal search as an atheist. And I would have said, there's no God. And I wasn't uh, anti-religion. I don't think I was unkind or uncharitable to religious people. I just thought it doesn't work for me. If it works for you, great, fine, glad, but it doesn't work for me. Uh, and then I got to college and met some guys who to me were different. There was something a little bit different about these guys. Uh, their relationships seemed to have a quality of richness to them that I'd never really seen before. And as I got to know these guys, it seemed that one after another, they would start gracefully, not sort of a beat down, they would gracefully sort of share that what was really important to them in their life was their uh, relationship with Jesus Christ. And I thought, you have gotta be kidding me. I mean, you've gotta be kidding me. And to be very honest, I thought, you know, normal people don't do that, right? And these were normal guys. And so I was intrigued by this. And I started asking some questions. One day, one of the guys said to me, have you ever read the New Testament? And I said, no. And to be honest, uh, I had, we, we didn't get into Bible much in the confirmation class. We didn't have Bibles in our home. So I never opened a Bible. So he said, uh, would you consider reading the New Testament? And I thought of myself as being very open-minded. And I said, sure. So I started reading the New Testament. And oh my goodness, I mean, all kinds of stuff I'm reading that I never knew existed. Including, if you're familiar with uh, the way a lot of New Testaments are presented, 
Many of them have the words of Jesus in red letters, if you're familiar with uh, Bibles that are composed that way. So I remember like the red letters jumping off the page to me when I was reading this. And I would run to these guys and ask them questions, and I would have my Bible in my hand, well, his Bible that he had lent me, and I'd be like, hey, did you know it says this in here? And, you know, it was that kind of conversation. Of course, they were like, yes, I did know it says that in there. <laughs> anyway, uh, trying to condense the story over a period of about 18 months of what felt to me really arduous searching, different religions, all the big ball of wax, I came to a place where I believe that uh, God is true, and uh, I prayed a very simple little prayer uh, to say, yes, Jesus Christ, I want you in my life. And that started lots and lots of changes in my life. So when I was coming out of college, I thought seminary and ministry maybe is what I should do. Because if God's done this in my life, I want to help as many people as possible have an opportunity to experience God this way. Some friends advised me, don't go to seminary directly out of college. Bad idea. Uh, these were fathers of friends of mine who were men in their probably 40s at the time. It wasn't what I wanted to hear, but as I look back on it now, for me, it was really good advice. And I went into banking for a number of years. I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, Elizabeth worked at the same bank, that's where we began to spend more time together, not actually at the bank, but after, <laughs> after work and stuff like that. Uh, we got married in 1987, and when we were, when our relationship was beginning to get interesting, I said to her, you know what, I need to tell you that I'm thinking really seriously about going to seminary and pursuing a ministry life. And I don't know where our relationship is headed, but I just thought I should tell you that. And if that's a DQ-er for you, and you're like, I didn't bargain for that, and I'm not interested in that, I thought better to part ways early than later. It's just going to be harder. So Elizabeth processed that, and we talked about it, and she sort of said, I'm up for it. And uh, so we got married in 1987, left and went to seminary in 1988. <laughs> there are lots of jokes about cemeteries and seminaries. And um, anyway, long story short, I arrived in Richmond and I began ministry at Third Presbyterian Church in Richmond, lots of wonderful people there. And I traveled a lot. I was a missions minister and I was overseas a lot. That's a big part of, I feel like, God's formative work in my life. Seeing different cultures, different parts of the world, all over the place, South America, Eastern Europe, Asia, Africa, and beginning to see the church in all its different forms and expressions and cultures expanded my vision dramatically. And so over time, this thought of starting a church began to grow. And I thought to myself, if it could possibly, if, if, it, if we could possibly do it, let's try to develop a church that could help a person like me. What I mean is there is an autobiographical story here. That's why we decided to do this. Our ministries, they certainly have autobiographical threads in them. Michael's passionate, and he grows out of his story, and so his ministry is an expression, a lot of who he is. The ministry and the priorities that I seek to emphasize in our church are, if there's somebody who has no church background, they're curious, they're interested, could they walk into a church and find that they're welcomed, that they're cared about, that their questions and skepticisms are welcome, not shunned, but that we welcome those and say, so glad you're here. 
I think for me also my own journey, having been an atheist and coming to faith, gives me a peaceful enjoyment of really robust conversations when people are asking questions about faith and the viability of faith. So some biographical background for both of us. Our topic today is religious vitality in America today. So why don't you kick us off with a couple of your observations? Sure, uh, I really appreciate that, uh, by the way, how you, how you framed it toward the end, because I, I also feel like my ministry, my rabbinate is, uh, um, I feel like very often I'm talking to younger versions of myself. Uh, uh, or sometimes I imagine my, my uncle Rob, who would always ask the really good, probing, challenging questions at our Passover seders uh, from the perspective of, a, of an atheist skeptic. Uh, and you know, wanting to really kind of put religion on the witness stand and uh, and see what it what it had to offer, uh, and I also think that uh, what you what you offered there uh, about uh, you know what could what could religion what could faith uh, is there a church that could speak to a person like me right or your friends that you met uh, in college right I didn't know that normal people uh, actually you know cared about faith and cared about religion. I think that that's actually a, a, a really significant uh, feature of the culture. I kind of went back about this and, and tried to see if I could pinpoint uh, a moment in history where, where I feel like uh, that shift happened. Uh, and in, already in the 1950s, uh, people were asking this question. So one of my spiritual mentors, never met him, and he, I think, uh, uh, passed away before I was even born, a rabbi named Abraham Joshua Heschel. He was a great theologian of the 20th century. He wrote an incredible book called God in Search of Man. And at the beginning of the book, he said that it's fashionable to blame science for the decline of religion in our time, uh, but really, on analysis, we should blame religion for its own demise. Uh, religion has become uh, insipid, irrelevant, and dull. Uh, it has been uh, focused on uh, fossilizing and worshiping relics of the past uh, rather than addressing the real questions that people have uh, in the present. So I'm not sure exactly when that shift happened, but already in the mid-50s, uh, Heschel was diagnosing it. And I think that it, it really exacerbated uh, in, the, in the 60s and 70s in the, in the period of the culture wars, uh, when uh, uh, very often I think religion was on the more conservative side of the equation. And so as people were kind of uh, experimenting and, and rebelling against the status quo in, in that time, uh, that, uh, that, that uh, for many people, uh, religion fell on the wrong side of the coin. Um, and then there was a, a very significant period at the same time uh, when institutions and institutional affiliation, uh, trust of institutions, uh, really uh, came under assault. I know when we, we, we spoke about this in my office the other, the other week, uh, you, you brought up Watergate, uh, and I think that, that was a real turning point. Uh, the, the, the skepticism uh, with which people started viewing uh, even the government and, and their leaders, and that translated to religious leaders and religious institutions as well. We see it, we saw it over the past decade or so uh, with, the, with the Catholic Church. I mean, th there's a real assault uh, on the credibility of, of religion so that uh, there, there, I think, is a wave of people, and you see that in the statistic that Marsha brought up, the increase in the nuns. I wish it were a rise of the N-U-N-S, but it's the N-O-N-E-S. Sounds like a Catholic mutiny. Yeah, right. We're uprising. <laughs> um, 
It's a great band name, though, by the way. Um, or, or, or an offbeat late-night movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, uh, that if you ask, you know, most of my, well, now most of my social circle are, are other people in the ministry. But when I was in high school and college, most of my circle, social circle were not particularly religious people. Uh, and, uh, and so there was often this divide between, you know, people who are thoughtful, people who are passionate about justice in the world, people who uh, are independent uh, thinkers and independent people who live independently and act independently in their lives. Um, we don't belong to uh, institutional religions. We don't give ourselves over to institutional religions. We don't affiliate with, uh, with, with institutions. We might have private faith. We might meditate. We might consider ourselves spiritual people. But all that kind of goes under the rubric of organized religion, institutional affiliation, um, that is reserved for the kooks and the, um, and the crazies and uh, the, um, uh, uh, I don't want to say things that are more pejorative than that, but I was gonna, <laughs> the word that was kind of my, this is what you get, you get when you don't speak with notes. And I, 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 when we were at dinner last night, I was, I was told be careful not to drop F-bombs um, because it's happening for so I was gonna say mouth breathers um, that uh, and I and I hear that from people that you know really thinking people don't uh, don't uh, affiliate with religion so I feel like what 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 that says to me is that for religion to be uh, vital in today's world um, it's got to have it's got to offer real wisdom not just knowledge and knowledge I think for a lot of religious history especially in America, knowledge was, this was true really of the Jewish community, was how do I make literate Jews, right? How do I teach Jews, you know, Bible stories and make, get them to know what it means to keep kosher and the laws of the Sabbath and that sort of thing? Um, that's knowledge. And it might be useful in some ways, but that's not wisdom. And there's real wisdom in the Jewish tradition, but our institutions, I think, are not generally uh, focused on, on offering wisdom. Sometimes we're, we're shy about the wisdom uh, in, in our tradition, but I think that that's what people are actually hungry for. Um, the second is, is justice, uh, social justice. More broadly, a religion that actually cares about what's going on in the world and is engaged in the world. Uh, I think I mentioned that when I was growing up, I saw uh, Judaism being much more concerned with kind of small in inter-Jewish issues. Uh, so we were concerned about issues of anti-Semitism and support for the state of Israel, uh, um, Jewish communal support and uh, intermarriage, things like that. Those are maybe important things, uh, but I think that in, in a, a multicultural and interconnected world, I think that to me, contemporary Jews, and I think this is true uh, across the religious boundaries, people are looking for a religion that actually cares about uh, people and making the world a better place. So I think that that's really important for vital religion. Uh, community, I think, is a really important one. So I grew up in a time where uh, all sorts of uh, uh, traditional uh, communal structures were being challenged, not only religion. Uh, I think we talked about this when we were speaking together. Uh, a great scholar named Robert Putnam a few years back uh, wrote a book, and if you haven't had him here, maybe you can get Robert Putnam here at the Tucker Women's Club. Um, he wrote a book called Bowling Alone. 
And he used the decline of bowling leagues in America as a model for what's happening for uh, organizational structures all over. So it's not just religions. Organizations like the Tuckahoe Women's Club are, uh, are rapidly fading from the landscape. I think that this is really, this I think was borne out in the recent election cycle too. I think a lot of the anxiety and, and inability of people to really talk and engage with each other that we, that we uh, see um, is uh, born of the fact that there are no more real communal structures that people belong to anymore. So, for, so uh, religion today uh, has the capacity to offer real, in-person, meaningful community in, in ways that I think that it hadn't been doing. Um, and then a sense of purpose. I know Hope really focuses on this and, and uh, does an extraordinary job about it, which is one of the reasons I sort of became an acolyte of, uh, of David's and, 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 uh, and a, um, uh, a groupie of hope, um, <laughs> because I think that people are really yearning for um, a sense of what's my place in this uh, kind of confusing, anxious world that we live in, um, and I think it's even more so uh, now where uh, the, the ability for a person to feel really small in a big sea of noise uh, is, uh, is, is really pressing for a lot of people, and I think that actually came out in the most recent uh, political election cycle too. You can see that. So I think that uh, for me, that's a major part of what makes religion and religious community vital today. So picking up and trying to listen carefully to, to your remarks, I would take a macro sense of what you're speaking about, and I hope this doesn't contort what you said. I think you're speaking about relevance. Mm -hmm. That people have felt that the traditional institutions of religion have grown irrelevant. And that's a very important question. And I personally feel it's really important that our engagement with people, their honest search, trying to make sense of life, that we have to have relevant things to say. That this is not a sidebar pocket of my life that it makes no sense in my normal life. We talk at Hope Church a lot, I, I say a lot, we're looking for zero degrees of separation between who you are when you're in church and who you are Tuesday afternoon uh, at the office, who you are Wednesday night at the family dinner table, who you are Saturday on a date with your spouse. We're looking for zero degrees of separation, that there is an authentic faith throughout. Years ago, somebody said to me, um, they used this phrase that worked for me, they said, let your spiritual life be natural and let your natural life be spiritual. Mm. Those words worked well for me. And you know, as people teach, sometimes even the words kind of work for you or not. But I think relevance is a, is a really big question. In similar, similar but different, naturally, I have felt that in many respects, uh, some venues of the church have majored on the minors and minored on the majors. Yeah. And that in religion, we have possibly a track record of doing this if we're willing to be self-critical. So my one part of my heart and my vision would be, could we do the best we can with appreciation for generations that have come before us, deep appreciation for the generations that have gone before us? Can we look at the expressions of the faith today? Can we major on the majors and minor on the minors? Can we not spend too much energy, money, et cetera, on what seem to be minors? They're just really not that important. Naturally, there's gonna be some debate about what one person calls a major and a minor and another person calls a major and a minor. But to me, this idea of relevance is really, really important. 
So here's where I'm gonna show my age a little bit because we were using this phrase with technology that probably, let's say if you're 30 years old or younger, technology is your native tongue. It's your fluent native tongue. You are completely fluent in it. So if you say to someone you know who's 30 or younger, hey, my, I can't figure out how to get my TV linked with my wireless and you know, my computer, and somebody who's 25, if you said to them, do you know how to fix it? Our 25-year-old would say, I don't know how, but give me a minute and I'll mess around with it and I'll figure it out. For me, technology is a second language. I've tried to be as fluent as I can with it to try to be bilingual, but it's a second language. And there is always a difference between a language that's a second language and a language that's your lingua franca, it's your mother tongue. So, I look at technology because I can really, I was old enough to be able to look at a non-technology world and now to see the technology world. A big piece that I think influences this, and I'm gonna make generalizations, I know that there are always exceptions to generalizations, but if we capitalize on the Mac concept of the iPhone, the iPad, and so on, we have this iLife. And in a sense, this iLife is a thoroughly customized life to the very exquisite specifications of who I am as a person. So this idea that I get to construct a life with my media, my surroundings, and everything that are highly customized to the specifics of who I am as a person, in my view, is a very, very significant change. So if you go back to the 60s and think of John Kennedy saying, think not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, in many respects, an invisible dynamic that sort of has grown up all by itself, and it doesn't walk around with a big sign that says, I'm here. Uh, an invisible dynamic is really the culture now, in my view, with younger people is that the culture must respond to the exquisite specifications of who I specifically am. That's different than the way it used to be because, quote, in the old days, it was, you serve the institution. Now, I think there's quite a big change to that, which is, no, no, the institution serves me. So there are dotted line connections to this sort of I-life kind of, kind of mindset. Uh, David Brooks wrote a recent book called The Road to Character. To me, this is a very illustrative little batch in the book. In a study, uh, he asked people, do you believe you are a very important person? The elderly cohort in the survey answered yes at 14%. 14% of the elderly people said yes, I'm a very important person. The younger in their 20s answered yes at 82%. <laughs> Think about that. That is a dramatic, breathtaking, can't overstate the significance of the difference of how those two people are looking at life and looking at the world. So religion now, in my view, has to pay close attention to this. And the question always, religion always exists in a culture. It always exists in a culture. And in Christian missiology, there is this whole idea that we have to be culturally relevant. You have to read the culture, understand it, and then speak of uh, God-given truth 
in a way that would be relevant and understandable in that culture, which is different than 20 years ago, 50 years ago, and so on. So trying to pay close attention to this kind of stuff is really, really important. Um, years ago, working on my doctoral thesis, another scholar, uh, Peter Berger, is a scholar at Boston University. Peter Berger said, over time, any minority organization in a larger surrounding culture will head in one of two directions. It will either tribalize or accommodate. Tribalize means we're gonna circle the wagons and close the doors and hunker down and anything that's not us makes us nervous and we feel threatened by it and we don't want it. The flip side is we're gonna accommodate because it's just too hard, it takes too much energy, too much emotion, too much intellectual rigor to keep having a distinctive voice when we're the minority in the larger culture. So because it's so much hard work, we're either gonna circle the wagons or we're just gonna accommodate and say, you know what, we're too tired. Whatever the larger culture says, we're like, fine, whatever. We don't wanna you know, ruffle any feathers. So then you've got a question, but what is your capacity to perhaps lift people to something higher? Maybe like some of you, this last uh, political cycle to me, um, I've been saddened and maybe some of it's my personality, disturbed at the level of vitriolic, acrimonious contentiousness. I fully appreciate disagreement and robust conversation and different viewpoints and all that, but th there really has seemed to be a hatred in the fabric of the American society. And that, first of all, deeply saddens me. Secondly, it disturbs me. Um, and so I'm also, can we speak gracefully to the truths that we hold with high respect for other people. And I actually think that in the current moment is a really important thing for religious voices to do. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot there that, that, I, um, that, that sparked some thought for me. Uh, and so at some point in here, there's going to be a question for you, I think. Um, but uh, uh, one was, it, it, this wasn't your point in, in talking about technology, but I think that it's, it's something worth lingering on, especially for the younger cohort that says, you know, you, you come to them with a computer problem or you know, iPhone problem or something like that, and, uh, and you say, you know, uh, can, you, can you tell me what's wrong with my phone or how do I do this thing? And I said, well, I don't know, but I'm going to tinker around with it and, and figure it out. I think that that's actually, that in itself, that response is a shift. I think that there's a, a DIY kind of uh, ethic in the, um, in the younger generation, uh, you know, the millennials and people behind them, that, uh, that, that didn't quite exist in the same way for my parents or grandparents' uh, generation, uh, where that was much more communally minded uh, and much more uh, trusting of traditional authority structures. So what I mean by that is, you know, I think my, uh, my grandparents for sure, my grandfather for sure would have been like this. My, my father maybe a little bit less so. But, uh, but if, you know, if, if the iPhone wasn't working, he would go to the instruction manual or he would call customer support, right? He wouldn't spend time with it kind of figuring out, tinkering and figuring it out. Whereas today, 
uh, I give it to a 25-year-old, and they're going to spend their time tinkering and figuring it out, not calling customer service, partially because calling customer service is just you know, a, a miserable experience that nobody ever wants to have. And cu customer service is an oxymoron in its own Right, right. right. Um, you want to talk about you know, threatening no, people with hellfire. Um, so, uh, but I, but I, so I think that actually has impact for, uh, for the, uh, the role religious institutions play and religious leadership plays. And I wonder a little bit about that. I have more to say, so I don't want, you can think about this as a question. Um, but I just, I wonder how you accomplish that, recognizing that you're talking to people who are, are searching in their own right and won't necessarily trust the answers you give them just because they're the answers you give them. Um, how do you then uh, speak with any kind of authority from your religious tradition about what it is that you believe and why you believe it uh, if, uh, if, if, the, if the person to whom you're talking just wants to seek out the answers themselves? Well, I'll ask that question, I'll, okay. I'll get the other stuff. So to me, I would go a little bit back. Um, I, I'm, I'm the guy in the confirmation class who was always raising his hand saying, that doesn't work for me. So to some degree, I think uh, perhaps that bleeds out in my normal teaching and my normal sermons. The normal pat answers generally don't work for me. And so I'm always sort of, but that doesn't make sense. And you, you've got to come up with a more intellectually viable response than that. Now, um, there's, a, there's a fascinating question to me with some of this, which is, is the loss of trust in the institutions and so on. Um, the cultural changes, and what we have to do is try to help people perhaps understand that um, there is a beauty and a goodness in knowing this God, because here's another like sidebar. We have all the statistics that Marsha mentioned and others did about decline and you know religion and so forth. Uh, I personally am a believer that um, everybody worships. It's just a question of what you worship. Every human being has highest things in their lives. Just a matter of what that highest thing is. And to me, that's a meaningful starting point to have a meaningful conversation. Also, everybody has a faith system. It may have God in it or not. Atheists have a very articulated faith. They believe in many things that are the building blocks upon which we premise our lives. And I appreciate that. Um, so then we're also, however, going to a place which is, I think that many people would say, with the rise of the individualization, the customization, you know, my, eye, my, my phone has a soundtrack to my life on it, you know? I remember whispering to Elizabeth, we were at a movie years ago, and there was just a scene, and this guy's coming down in his boxer shorts to make coffee in the kitchen, and there's this soundtrack, this music going. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if there was like a soundtrack when you got up in the morning? There is it when you- make coffee. And so, so life is, we get to sort of construct our lives with these supporting structures. At the same time, I think there are many people who are saying, but the world feels more and more and more confusing to me than ever. Now, take it to some studies such as, I was looking into this, and I, I looked in this a while ago in some sermon work. A Harvard study uh, in 2012 said that the use of antidepressants in America has increased 400% from 1998 to 2008. So we all know statistics just on the numbers, there's a lot more to them than just the numbers. 
But at some level, that's going to get our attention and make us say, boy, that's a flag that went up. We need to pay attention to that. Why is that happening? Is it simply because the drug companies have become adept at making good medications? That's probably part of it. Um, but are people more, much more depressed and anxious than they used to be? Personally, in my ministry, I find that to be the case. There seems to be much more depression and anxiety than I remember years ago. So in the midst of the individualization, I also think there's confusion. And then there's also depression that comes with a sense of, I don't know where to go for answers. I don't know where to find vitality and find life. So to me, if we love people well in their journey, and that is huge, can't underscore that enough. Do you care about people and love them well in their journey? I think there's a gift of clarity that we get in a very confusing world if we can help point them to God uh, as a God who is Lord over life, who is good and beautiful and loving. And I think that clarity is a significant gift in the confusions and depressions that are permeating the culture. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I mean, that, there's, there's a lot there. Uh, you know, I, I, I wonder about that. Um, I, I wonder, you know, like, like you said, um, if, if the rise in, in anxiety and depression and, and the medications that are prescribed for it actually reflect a shift in the culture uh, or, like you said, reflect, you know, better drugs, better uh, diagnoses. Um, I, you know, I, I wonder about that. I wonder how much different people are today than they were 100 years ago. My, my assumption is that people, you know, evolutionary biology takes a long time uh, and, uh, and that we're probably uh, much more similar to our ancestors who uh, lived on the savanna uh, than we are different than you know, people 50 years ago who weren't getting uh, prescribed Xanax. Um, and so, but that actually is, is relevant to me too because it also means that uh, the, the faith tradition of my ancestors, right, 2,000 year old wisdom uh, can still be applicable and relevant to people today because it still speaks to the same struggle. Right? People always have had hope. People always have had loss. People always have had longing in their life, right? So, uh, and those are the questions and the issues that my rabbinic ancestors were wrestling with and then, and your rabbinic ancestors too, were wrestling with uh, as well. So I, I think that that's really, that's really important in kind of framing the moment. But I wanna, I wanna go back to the, uh, to the, the issue that you raised um, about the divisions that were uh, at, at least revealed to be as vitriolic as they are in the last election if they didn't exist before that. Um, there are a couple things that, that I think are worth pointing out. There. The first is that it's the, 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 how you articulated uh, tribalism versus accommodation is a really interesting frame. Because I don't remember uh, where I read this, but I remember someone saying that our politics have become our tribalism and, uh, and that both liberals and conservatives feel like they're the um, oppressed minority that has to circle the wagons and rally the defenses. Uh, and so they often feel like they're fighting wars with each other because they don't want to accommodate uh, each other's perspectives and point of views. Um, 
and so I think that plays out. I mean, you know, people who are, uh, you know, the, the religious left and the religious right, uh, I think very often, and I, I noticed this throughout the, the, the election cycle on both sides, uh, that very often the religious was totally ancillary to the political disposition, right? So, uh, so people who tended to uh, vote conservative and also identified themselves as religious people uh, contorted their religious views to fit whatever was being said in conservative circles uh, in, in those days. And people on the left do that too all the time. Um, and, I, and I feel like in some ways like that's our tribalism now. But what I wanted to push you on is, you know, you come from a tradition, as I understand it, and I feel like I come from a tradition, too, that even though um, we believe in inclusion and pluralism and, uh, and, and supportive, loving conversation, at the end of the day, uh, we're not um, uh, relativist, right? We, we believe that there is uh, a, a right and a wrong, a good and evil. So how, do, how does, a, how does a, uh, a religious community, a religious leader in our time uh, hold what we see as a, a right and a wrong, especially as it relates to the affairs of the world, uh, and still have space and room uh, for differences in point of view and, and open conversation and dialogue? Yeah, I... You can have the context of that within your congregation, that's one context, and then with your voice in the larger surrounding culture. At some level, I mean, that's a massive question yeah. you just asked. Yeah. But in and, two seconds, and just hey, we're it. running yeah. out of time, actually. <laughs> um, which maybe we, we are. Should, maybe we should take this on the road. So here's, yeah. what, here's, here's what I would say. To take a massive question and dramatically shrink it, you talked about are we, are we that different than we used to be? At the core, I don't think we are. I think there are core hungers in the human heart that are not new. I think human beings long to be loved. We long to find affirmation and appreciation and acceptance. Um, and to be part of something larger than ourselves, even in this time where people are saying, I'm very important. Yes. Right, yeah. Well, and this looking inward sometimes is like peeling an onion. If I keep peeling, I'm going to find the core, but an onion doesn't have a core. You just keep going, and the layers keep going. It's not like an avocado. You, know, you, you peel it, and it's got a really solid big nut in the middle. Um, I think what I would say, to, because of time and so on, I would say trying to sort this out depends on the context, the situation, the conversation, and so on. But we have to agree to disagree and care about each other as human beings while we may have differing opinions. And that's not to minimize that we may hold those opinions as dear and important. But if, if we start hating each other, then the culture, I mean, then the problems get massive. Then our political disagreements are a sandbox of small potatoes compared to the larger fracturing and problems. So at some level, uh, we agree to disagree. And have warm-hearted conversation, and also listen. That's a huge piece. I don't hear people listening to each other. I hear lots right. of shouting, lots of right. bombastic, you know, dropping bombs. Right. But I don't hear people saying things like, that's really meaningful, could you tell me more about that and right. why you feel that way? Of course, you can't do that on media and, you know, sound bites. Right. Maybe we should take a few questions just for a moment. I know we're running late. Um, but if there are any questions, one or two, uh, up in the balcony. Yes. Um, I'd like to ask you, what absolutely no interest in introducing 
You've been a parent longer. I was going to say. (laughs) Michael's children are four and two. I think he's expertly equipped for that question. Um, Four-year-olds and two-year-olds love God. They do. And they will ask the theological questions completely unfiltered. Um, So naturally, that's a really tough question. Because part of your question is family dynamics, family relationships, what's the nature of our family, and all of that. Um, I think the answer is to love them well. Uh, In the biggest picture, I want to say this hopefully sensitively, our kids, in my view, are not our own. We don't own them. My children don't belong to me. They belong to God. God saw fit that they would be born of our marriage. Um, What I, even if we really disagree with our kids or we parted company on religious questions, I still want a loving, close relationship. And I've sometimes seen families lose the relationship because they held their religious views as more important. And there's actually some New Testament theology about how God came to us even when we cared nothing about him. And so to me, I know that that question, it has to have a lot of personal thoughts and feelings. And, but my thought would be uh, love your kids the best way you know how. Seek to keep communication open and loving. And I think in time, there can be little doors and opportunities for conversation. That's, I think, the best I could say in in this venue. But I'm sure there's a lot to your own heart in that question, and I appreciate that. I just want to add very briefly, and I really appreciate the question. I think that there's there's, uh, any number of ways in which our kids uh, don't uh, meet the desires or expectations that when we start out on the journey of parenting, we hold out for them, and many ways in which that's actually really good for them. Uh, and so I hold out the possibility that, uh, that my, my kids, as they grow into their own maturity, um, are going to have a, have a good head on their shoulders and know what's right for their own life and, and need to trust and respect them and the decisions that they make, unless they're doing something that's actively harmful to themselves. Uh, but the other thing I want to say, and I think this is related to how you started on your, your journey in your own faith, um, you were drawn to your faith uh, by seeing what it was like for people who actually lived that relationship. Um, and so what, what, how I view my own children and how I want to uh, uh, inspire them to live Jewish lives uh, when, when the, as they grow up, uh, is to uh, try to demonstrate them through example what that faith and what that belonging does for me and does in my life, how it makes me a better person, how it makes me a better father, how it makes me uh, a, a better human being, uh, and for them hopefully to see that as a natural expression and outgrowth of faith, and for them to say, if that's what being involved and committed as a Jew looks like, then count me in. They may not, I may not do a great job of that, or even if I do a good job of that, they may not make that conclusion, but I feel like that example is the best I can do. Uh, uh, An authentic and well-lived loving life uh, does speak significantly. Um, Where is Janet? Uh, One more question? Yes.
interesting question. Yes, uh, I'll take a short whack at it. Maybe you have a thought on it. Uh, I do think our times are massively significant. Sorry, you maybe repeat the question. It sounds Sorry, like some people didn't right. hear it. Thank yeah. you. The question was, the older people who answered David Brooks' question, are you a very important person at 14%, and the younger who answered that, yes, at 84%, is that the result of the culture they grew up in? Is it their times, or was there an arc of life experience that drew that conclusion? Uh, I think the answer is yes. I think all of that. I do think it's a product of our times. I'm inclined to believe, I wasn't born in the wartime generation, but I, I'm a history buff, and everything I gleaned from it was that there was a sense which is, you sacrifice for the well-being of the country, and you serve patriotically in whatever way you can. So it wasn't, this is all about you. It was, hey, you need to contribute to the well-being of the nation. Um, I do think that life experience, challenges, hardships, can also have a way of right-sizing our egos. And having our egos right-sized is usually a rather painful journey, but also a very liberating one, And I think. And so I, I think that it's a great question. I think the answer is it, it's all of that. Yeah, it's, it is a really great question. Uh, I don't know if I have a, a, a great answer for it beyond what David said, but I, I will add a uh, something that uh, when, when David mentioned that in, in our conversations uh, prior to this, it struck me that my own tradition has, I think, extraordinary wisdom for exactly that divide. So there's a, a rabbinic tradition that says uh, every person should uh, carry in their pockets at all times two slips of paper with, uh, with two different uh, biblical verses. One saying, I am but dust and ashes, and the other saying, the world was created for me. And in a moment in which you feel, in a moment in which you feel like I am not very important, you pull out the paper that says the world was created for me because there's a way in which we can't serve God in our smallness, right? I think of the spies in the book of Numbers who come back from the land of Israel saying we look like grasshoppers in our own eyes, so we must have looked like to them, and they refuse to enter the land, the promised land, right? So there's a way in which we can't serve God in our smallness, but also there's a way in which our ego can uh, cloud our ability to serve and become part of a, of a larger whole. So there are moments in which we need to say, I'm actually not all that important. I'm part of a larger whole, and I owe the larger whole uh, gratitude and service. And so we pull out the slip of paper saying, um, I am but dust and ashes to remind ourselves that even though we are children of God, we're also children of dust, and we may not be so great after all. <laughs>